one of the messages that we really want to send home to everybody, especially the younger generation, the perseverance to keep moving forward. The obstacles that Gordon had in his life were incredible. Yes. The barriers that he had to accomplish yes. to achieve what he achieved. And he did that with no resources, yes. no support like That's there right. is today. Welcome again to another exciting episode of St. Louis in Tune. Thank you for joining us for fresh perspectives on issues and events with experts, community leaders, and everyday people who are driving change and making an impact that shapes our society and world. I'm your host, Arnold Stricker, along with co-host Mark Langston, and I'm thrilled to have you here with us today because in today's episode, we're going to explore the life of Gordon Parks with Kirk Sharp, and it's going to be eye-opening. I promise you that. But remember that knowledge alone is not enough. To make a real impact, you need to take action. I want you to take one concrete step inspired by something you learn in this episode today. It could be something as simple as sharing this podcast with a friend who needs to hear it, or it could be a more significant commitment to persevere through your situation, whatever it is. Gordon Parks, his story is one of remarkable accomplishments and his life is a testament to his ability to express himself through his gifts and talent. But what exactly were those gifts and talents, and when did they begin to manifest in his life? Be prepared to be amazed by his creativity and the legacy he left behind on this episode of St. Louis in Tune. We're here at the Gordon Parks Museum in Fort Scott, Kansas, and Kirk Sharp is the executive director, and we're sitting down to have a conversation in the museum surrounded by a lot of Gordon Parks' photographs, a history of his life, and we're going to get into a variety of things which you may not know about Gordon Parks, but Kirk, tell us a little bit about yourself. My background's in healthcare, fitness, rehab. I was the director at the hospital here in Fort Scott, Kansas, Mercy Hospital. Okay. Uh, with the rehab department, the fitness center, sports medicine, occupational medicine, and okay. How does that translate to Gordon Parks? It's a long transition okay. because I've always been part of this from the beginning, from mm-hmm. one thing to another. I started out with the committee when the steering committee first got established in 2004. And I just slowly became more and more involved because I was always interested with it. And I was on the board here mm-hmm. for a long time, mm-hmm. probably seven years. And probably five of those seven years, I was the president of the board. I provided tours, helped create projects. I was pretty much involved quite a bit when I could as a fun, novelty, novice, not as a profession. Right. And, of course, it didn't pay the bills. It was just volunteer time. And Mercy Hospital closed down in 2018 unexpectedly. So Mm -hmm. it impacted this community. Over 200 position jobs has been here for almost close to 100 years. It was very devastating news once they did that. I was part of that closure. And this position came available. Everybody started telling me, Kirk, you ought to come out here. No, that's not my profession. That's just a novelty, a novice of interest, a fun. Right. But the more I, I start getting more and more people unexpectedly telling me I should apply, um, everybody thought I'd do good at it. Of course, again, going back, this is not my profession, but um, it's eventually, long story short, I went ahead and did it on the leap of faith, and uh, I'm still learning every day. Right. But even with my occupation job, I was still learning. So I don't think anybody, no matter what they do, can get to the level that they stop learning and think they got it, because once you think you got it, you're going to get it. Uh, I like that. You got to keep learning, keep moving. So adjustment. So that's how I got started here. So were you 
raised in the area here? I'm from Fort Scott, yes. Okay, so you grew up knowing his name and knowing the impact he had on his yes community and, that the and impact the community no. had on him. Yes okay. and no. Okay. When I grew up in our generation, no one knew about Gordon Parks, unfortunately. And I grew up 70s, 80s, um, I'd say even to the late 90s. Not really a lot of people knew. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the older generation, they knew about him, knew some of his work was here when he did the filming of The Learning Tree. But it never got reinforced through the community, through education, through anywhere, white or black. Mm-hmm. He heard the name once before. You'd think he was some famous person, maybe didn't know quite what he was or who he, what he did because there's too many other things happening. It just wasn't reinforced at all in the community. I'm not sure what happened hmm. during that time because when he did the filming here, it was nothing but the huge rage. And then suddenly it just, the noise stopped. But I really didn't know his impact until I had a conversation with my mother when I was in college. And she was trying to tell me there's a film here. And I said, I cannot believe there's a film here, a major film. And no one really knows about it. At least right. I don't know right. about it. My friends don't know about it. And and she said a lot of it was because the racism and right. discrimination and right. just, just plain hating on it. And so it just still didn't really set in because I didn't see it nowhere else. I couldn't smell it, feel it, touch it, taste right. it. I was at a friend's house. We were flipping through some channels. And I kept across this one film. I said, hey, that looks like the house across the street. And then it dawned on me. And then, of course, we confirmed it with my mom. And she said, yes, that's a learning trick because we looked at TV Guide. And so the next day I went to the library because the video store did not have it. Hmm. It was the library and took it home, watched it. I was just in awe because the familiarity I had with the the locations in the film, not to mention the people. And, of course, the story, too, was great. And so that started the journey to learn more, trying to learn more about Gordon Parks. And as I was reading through some of the things here in the museum that – the community really was not hep on having him do that no. filming here. No. And an, until the mayor got the town, quote unquote, fathers together and say, hey, he's going to spend a lot of money here and the film production company is going to spend a lot of money here. Otherwise, it's going to a neighboring town. Yes. There's a lot of small towns around Fort Scott that would love to have Gordon there. But Gordon really wanted to do this in his hometown. But he but just kept on getting resistance from a lot of businesses and people in the community stereotyping it. The book, the racism, discrimination, just felt like it's going to put Fort Scott in a bad light. And a lot of those folks that lived during those times of Gordon were still there, even the descendants. And so Gordon's book, even though it's a semi-autobiography, but it's pretty close to life to what he did. He just put some things in, had different aspects in his life that happened. But the film is based on that book. And so Mayor Doherty befriended Gordon and said, just give me some time. Let me see what I can do because I, we want this film here. And the mayor got the city leaders together and said, look, we, I believe in Gordon. This is going to be a great film. And the, the leaders finally uh, realized this, and which I'm sure revenue, when they saw the figures, that probably influenced them too as well. Absolutely. Um, because when you get a major studio coming in to do a film, it's going to be an influx of revenue. They wrapped their arms around Gordon. They created, which I think is incredible, a Gordon Parks Day in 1968 and honor and tribute to Gordon Parks. And this is right in a pivotal time during the civil rights movement and a day in honor of a black man and here in Fort Scott, Kansas during 1968. Governor Docking was here too as well to wow. Kansas, and declared that day movie making day in honor of Gordon Parks. So city leaders were here. The Warner Brothers executives were here. Cast and crew was here. And so that was their opportunity to inform the community and everybody involved of what's going to take place during the filming. 
the, the plot scenes, the locations, the cast and crew had opportunity to talk about their character. And from my understanding, all the cast and crew felt really welcome in the community. And there's a lot of buzz went around. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of buzz when you got a filming take place. And it was an open set, which is pretty much unheard of oh, these days. Yeah. There's hundreds of people in the community that were extras in the film. On one location, my mom took some old film footage of Gordon filming and some of the cast members. And it mixed in with some of our family and stuff, vacations and stuff. But I always asked that when I was a kid. I remember growing up, who is that? And and they tried to tell me. And I just thought it was maybe some rich aunt or uncle or something like that. It just went, yeah, because I've only seen it once a year around Christmas time. Other than that, I'm going to the other things that's trending, that's focused as a kid would. But yes, there are several people and uh, had extras in the film and some even got paid checks and some even has some speaking parts too as well. Did you ever get a chance to meet him before he passed? It was very informal when he first came in 2004 when I very first start part of it. I didn't feel like I needed to be front and center. There's so many people going up to him. But when he came down to the Liberty Theater, I was inside the theater. I was outside of it a little bit when he got out of his limousine. I just remember his eyes. It just seems like they look like glow like diamonds. Mm. And just he has such a wonderful smile. And then I stayed inside kind of way bef- behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And then as he came in, we had eye contact. And he greeted me and I greeted him with a nice little, little back. It's almost like we had a good, great connection there quick, silent one. So and it seems as I was doing some research on him that he really liked to spend time with a group of people that he was going to photograph and get to know them. Personal interactions, personal relationships were important because he didn't want to have things be quote-unquote staged or or fake. He wanted the real thing and he wanted to be, oh, you know, that's Gordon off there, you know, taking pictures. That's not a big deal. That personalness, I think, translates in his photographs uh, that you see. What was the thing that kind of harnessed his, I don't want to say anger, but one of these sayings says says it up here. This one, I chose my camera as a weapon against all the things I dislike about America, poverty, racism, discrimination. How did he harness that poverty, that racism, that discrimination that he saw starting here in Fort Scott that even perpetuated throughout his career? How did he harness that in what he did in music and photography and poetry and all the things that he did? I think he started out, first of all, with his camera. He experienced those things growing up in life and midlife through his career, different jobs that he had. But when he picked up that magazine while working at the railroad station, he saw how those photographs moved him of the Great Depression era from photographers like Dorothea Lange Mm -hmm. and Walter Evans. Mm -hmm. And so that moved him. He saw the power and the imagery. And that is something that he knew that could be his weapon. He saw the power. Power is a weapon. Weapon's power. And so he chose the camera to be his weapon of choice to fight against those three things that he disliked, racism, poverty, discrimination. And so he learned that technique by visiting, listening to people through Roy Stryker when he first started right. the Farm Security Administration mm-hmm. in 1942. On his very first day on the job, Roy said, I want you to do three things. First of all, go put your camera in your office. Go to a coffee shop, buy some coffee, have some coffee. Go to a clothing store and buy a top jacket. Go watch a film and come at the end of the day, tell me how those things went and how your day went. So at the end of the day, Gordon came back and said, I'm done. I think you know how my day went. 
And I got denied on all those three places because of the color of my skin. Gordon mentions how he felt Washington, D.C. at that time was the most racist place that mm-hmm. he's ever experienced. And Roy told Gordon, okay, what are you going to do with your camera? And Gordon got that, uh-huh, okay, I see what you're saying. Now, Roy also said, now, wait a minute. Don't just go ahead and take a photo of a bigot and put on the headlines, bigots. Because bigots have a way of making themselves look better than anybody else, but show the impact and the justice of them. And he advised Gordon to visit with older black people in the community to get some insight and listen to them. And that's where Gordon learned that technique to take time. And so on that very first night, the same night, he met Ella Watson which term is charwoman, but basic terms is, is a cleaning later custodial janitor working late in the on the federal buildings that he worked at. And he talked to her, visited with her, listened to her story, which Gordon felt like it was a tragic story that she described lynchings in her family with her husband, her son, her daughter died. And she's left to take care of children on salary that she can barely live to afford on. And Gordon said, well, can I take your picture? And I'd like to take your picture in front of that American flag with a broom in one hand and a mop in the other. And he called that American Gothic because the first thing that came to his mind was the Grant Woods painting, American right. Gothic, with the, the the farmer and the pitchfork. And he wanted to show the world this is America for many people in the, in this nation at that time. And still, unfortunately, still a reflection, too, on poverty and discrimination. And that photo was powerful. And he felt like he started learning more of that technique of what, what he wanted to do. Now, some of the times when he'd go on assignments, there'd be days before he'd get out his camera because he made those great connections. Mm-hmm. He's being invited into their lives, not the other way around. He's not forcing. Right. He's getting an opportunity to be invited into their lives. And he was doing that. was very respectful. And a lot of his imagery that you can see is very intimate, but it's still tasteful. He just able to capture some of the critical moments that all of us do have, whether they have something on their mind, something serious, some laughter, some joys, some sadness. And he also took photos of beauty, too, mm-hmm. as well. He never took pleasure in taking the photos of racism, discrimination, poverty. It just felt like something that he just needed to be done, but he enjoyed creating beautiful things, too, as well. He started his work a big break in fashion photography and especially with life magazine too as well and some photos i think he had the concept so he did take some time to stage in some of those aspects okay Okay. because he wanted to create the right lighting but Mm -hmm. he he had the concept right away so it's not like he took days or days to figure out i think he knew what he wanted to do at the moment allowed for him to do that too as well You mentioned Life magazine. I had read some information on his work with the gang leader. Yes. And Red, I don't remember Red's last name. Jackson. Red Jackson. And then the article that's right over there, Red Jackson, what, 40 years later, is writing him back. Yes. And saying he saw his picture and made him reflect a little bit. Do we still know anything about Red? Or I, I don't know anything follow up with Red of late. Maybe something I probably need to look at to see. But... That moment, that was Gordon's first assignment with Life magazine. Right. And he did that to create and pitch the idea to the editor to get his foot into the door to do a story on Harlem gang leaders and not to encourage gangs, but to discourage African-American youth to be in gangs. So Gordon was right there through everything. And it took some time to get 
them to trust. Obviously, everybody thought he was crazy from right. the police. Even the gang members thought, you must be nuts. Why would we have you come take photographs of us yeah. hanging around? But Gordon's technique, he made them feel at ease and he earned their trust. And so he was there with everything, with the gang fights, with the funerals, the deaths, the other side that a lot of people would not know uh, that's featured in the Life Magazine essay with uh, Red Jackson at home with his parent, with his mother, with his family. Jackson had a conflict going, knowing that's not the future right. of, of life. And I think one of his most recognizable photo is probably Red Jackson after a fight. There was being chased from some other rival gang members. Of course, Gordon had to run, too, because they didn't know who he was. He was right. there. So his life was in danger, along with the other assignments he was on. And one of the photos that Red Jackson is reflecting out, looking out the window, mm-hmm. it's, it's a powerful photo because you can see possibly the conflict that's going through Red's mind at that time. It's for a lot of interpretation with mm-hmm. that, too. Seeing who's out there, seeing what the next move is, do I want to continue with this life and those type of things. And Red Jackson's assignment is when some of the gang members ask Gordon, are you ever going to take a photo of us? And Gordon just simply replied, said, yeah, I will when I think it's the right moment. Yeah. And so that holds very much light in Gordon's techniques. And when he was with us on assignment with uh, Muhammad Ali, he was at the fight. I think it was the fight he lost with Frazier. And, of course, the Ali's camp would not allow anybody into a locker room after the fight except for Gordon Parks. Mm. And so they allow Gordon Parks to come in. Ollie's on the training table, sitting down, get a treat. And, and Gordon just sitting there quietly. And Ollie starts to say, I suppose you want to take a photo of my pretty face to see what I look like. Show the world what I look like after I lost a fight. And Gordon quickly said, Ollie, there's nothing more I'd rather do than take a photo of you right now, but I just ran out of film. And that wasn't the image that he wanted to display at the moment. I think the whole world probably saw that. and But he wanted to, he didn't feel like that was the right thing. And that shows the sign of respect that he has for all the people that he took photos of. Not just go to him just taking 100 million photos in a second or a day of different aspects, but show the photo that helps tell the story. And right. that's uh, photojournalism. It reminds me the subject matter is so much more important than the photographer. Yes. And in a lot of cases, the photographer would take that chance exactly. for their own ego. Yes, you're right. Not for the subject matter. And so that's the importance of Gordon's work and how he harnessed that. When I think about the ups and downs that he had, dropping out of school here, getting sent to his sister and brother-in-laws mm-hmm. up in Minnesota, and then being in and out of school there and then working as a porter and then playing basketball up there and playing mm-hmm. pro ball mm-hmm. and getting a job that he really didn't get his formal education completed. No. But he really had an education. And I think of when I read his poetry or that he's a piano player and played with a group in New York City, and I, I see a CD over here where Wynton Marcellus and, and mm-hmm. he are guest artists on this particular mm-hmm. CD. It's amazing that he just kept on going through what he was going through, and yes, it's, and, and he just flourished. Yeah, and that's the one of the messages that we really want to send home to everybody, and especially the younger generation, that the perseverance to keep moving forward. The obstacles that Gordon had in his life were incredible. Yes. The barriers that he had to accomplish yes. to achieve what he achieved. And uh, I think Gordon's quote is saying, the bigger the challenge, the, the, the harder the door, the harder the knock. Mm-hmm. And that's 
it's a great metaphor for people to learn, no matter what age you are, what generation you are, to keep moving, keep finding a way to get over that wall, get over that obstacle, and don't let that first letdown be the overall one. Don't let that first no or that first negative response is to be continued to find ways to keep moving, being creative. And Gordon is the essence being perseverant and challenging. And just, he did that with no resources, no support like there is today. There was none. He was the first in a lot of different areas and categories and fields. And it's amazing. It's incredible. He could have stopped at any time. He could have stopped when he just was in the streets, right. starving, but he kept moving. He right. kept going, and he kept going. And and that I think that's his substantial hunger to drive, to keep doing better, to keep moving. And I think that goes back to a lot of his family up life, uh, upbringing through his mother and father to, to make sure that he keeps moving forward. I know he's self-taught on piano, and he's written some concertos. Uh-huh. He's written a variety of music things. Where does this come from? Yeah, he's, he learned how to play, play the piano at a very young age, about six or seven years old, at his mother's upright piano. And I don't know if you saw the receipt on the... Yes. But we do have that receipt of the piano that she purchased. And so he could play by ear. He could never understand how to read or write music, even though they tried to teach him when he was in school. But he just couldn't understand the concept. Mm-hmm. But So his technique was to write down slashes and numbers to represent the keys on the keyboards. He calls it very very simple. Feels like anybody could probably figure it up, but no one really can't because it's its own <laughs> little uh, code. Uh, we do have a copy of one of the right. sketches of the concerto that he did. And so with that, he never could ever read or write music. So he had to have trained musicians to understand his concept from the keys and to listen, and they come up with the notes so other trained musicians can pick up, especially for arrangements. Gordon wrote arrangements for instruments he didn't know how to play, but they're beautiful. And everybody I talked to, tried to play some of Gordon's music, always tell me how hard it is because they have to learn it because of the wonderful, difficult arrangements he created, but it's beautiful. For someone to do that now, they would have to have years of experience on different instruments, education, variety of different things but what Gordon just sits down and listens just jots down and just goes to piano and plays and he performed two concertos by piano a symphony and he also wrote uh, the soundtrack to the learning tree and he also composed and directed a, a ballet called right. Martin and Arnold Martin Luther King and he composed a lot of other music too as well and so it's, it's incredible that again just being all self-taught photography He's all self-taught. Right. No formal education, no training. He, But I think Gordon was a great historian, past photographers. He would learn that way, mm-hmm. I believe, from that concept because some of his imagery he would re-image or do a different rendition of to learn how they did it, such as that one of Langston Hughes up top. I don't know if you can see that. With the hand in the window. Yes. He did that from a photograph of John Costeau. Hmm. A photographer. It was, oh, I'm sorry. John Costeau took a, a photograph of that same concept in the early 1920s okay. with the hand in the window. So Gordon did that, and he also did that with Art Kane's photo too, as well. That he took of Art Kane took a photo of blues and jazz artists in the late 50s or 60s. Folks like Count Basie and mm-hmm. Phineas Monk is in there, and he did that in Harlem. So Gordon reimaged that photo in 1998 
at the same street, the same block, the same building in Harlem, and he used today's genre, 177 hip hop artists, and he called that a great day in hip hop. And in contrast of the great day in Harlem, that helps with the show the generation of Gordon's life and legacy continues to live on. He's written over 20 books, all self-taught, just wrote. He's directed over 10 films. Again, with no formal education in anything, he tried to graduate high school, just never had that opportunity because he moved from Fort Scott at age 16. Mm-hmm. And then when he went to St. Paul, he took ill, so he couldn't graduate then, and he never had a chance to go to college. But when he was here, a particular counselor and teacher told him and other blacks, students, don't go to college. You're, why waste your parents' money? You're just right. end up as a railroad worker maid and those type of things. When Gordon received his 30th honorary doctor's degree, he said he wished that teacher and counselor was right there. He'd have gave her the award. And he also dedicated that to the teacher and counselor. And then when he received his 40th one, he said he just wished she was right there because he would just give the award. And that was from Princeton. And so he's received over 50 honorary doctorate degrees from distinguished schools and universities across the nation. You know, a man that could have been bitter yes a lot in his life he was very uh, generous and compassionate i would say from that story that you just said he could have you know shoved it in her face and, yeah of course he, she probably passed by then by right. the time he get, but still and speaking of bitter yeah he was bitter toward fort scott for a very long time mm-hmm. because of the way he was treated and the way blacks were treated too mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. in the late 90s early 2000s the mayor at the time here in fort scott ken lump befriended gordon reached out to him to try to let him know fort scott's not the same fort scott that you knew and grew up in and things have changed and gordon realized this and he was very moved by the things that we were able to do for him especially when he came in 2004 but he was bitter toward fort scott and rightfully it was the way he was treated was that the impetus for what we are sitting in today back there in the early 2000s, getting this particular museum uh, put together? Yes, it was always in discussion and starting, I think, in the late 90s to uh, 2000s on trying to do something, and then all of a sudden it just happened. And Ken Lunt was a big part of that, too, as well. I'm not going to ask you your favorite photograph. Please don't, because I get asked that all the time. (laughs) What's the favorite portion or story that you have of Gordon Parks that resonates with you personally? I think his drive to not give up, to keep moving forward, and his creativity. And he evolved his creativity. He started out with photography. He started out with music, or probably music versus probably before photography, and poetry. He's done everything there is to do creativity. And he tells a story one time he was helping his father on the farm out in the fields and he saw some birds fly up and music came to his mind quickly mm. and he got off the, the tractor went to the house start playing and of course wow you know how that went off with the <laughs> dad coming in the house get back in and here. his mom came to his defense and, and said andrew just leave him alone gordon's going to be gordon he's doing it. he's going to be great and so i think he was born in my opinion with that gift, that talent to express. I think he was born the gift to do anything yes. that he wanted to do. Yes. Because you noted earlier he was a professional basketball player, right. and he talks about learning that skill here. Right. I think if he just wanted to be a dishwasher for all his life, I think he'd be the best dishwasher in America, in the world. I think Gordon had that drive. That it was the key mm-hmm. to that, to excel, to 
try to create the best thing he can do, no matter what it is. And I think that's something that we all can learn from. The most surprising thing about uh, Gordon Park's life that you never knew until you got this job? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to tell you, it's I'm in awe every day. Um, there's just so much. Uh, we have people come in that say they have to come back because there's just they have no idea he was a musician too. They had no idea he was a filmmaker or they didn't have an idea he's a photographer. They thought they come in for one aspect and they leave yes. with a whole lot of others. I think yes. you've probably experienced that. You're exactly right. Too. And there's just so much. We have photos of him with presidents. He's been with kings and queens, with, mm. had cigar and drink with Winston Churchill, with celebrities. And he became godfather to some of Malcolm X's children. He oh. became great friends with Muhammad Ali mm-hmm. when he covered him twice through Life magazine. He took photos of Marilyn Monroe, Joe DiMaggio, Ingrid Bergman. The list goes on and on. And not to say they're more important than any other families out there because they're not. It's just his significance that he was able to make such great contact and make people feel at ease no matter who they are. And I just, it's just hard for me personally to because I come across them, I said, wow. Yeah. And then you sit there and think about it, which I try not to because it just puts you it in. It blows your mind. It blows your mind and then it loses focus. I think everything he does, and I don't think people realize how much he's done because it's not so unnormal to excel and do as much as he has done and achieved what he has done in one field, such as photography or filmmaking, music, musicians, or whatever that case may be. But it's very unusual for someone, one person to do so much, excel for so many fields, pretty much everything yes. he wanted to touch to. And that's why I referred to as the Renaissance man. Yeah. I he mean, is. he was simply put the Renaissance man, and he's the master of all everything. What he wanted to do, he's going to do it well. And he's done it. His life is just, it's an amazing story. It's a remarkable life story, his career. And that's one of the things here at the museum that we want to honor his life. Mm -hmm. And we want to recognize his accomplishments and help teach others about his artistic creativity. And everyone's artistic creativity and cultural awareness and diversity that's in all of our lives. And we want to keep his story alive and well for generations to come and try to get it more into homes so it becomes more of a household name because Gordon Parks is a very powerful, iconic figure that we are so blessed to have in this lifetime. Have you seen everything in the collection here? There's a lot. I'm probably uh, put my eyes on quite a few things. That's why we have a list (laughs) to (laughs) go buy. And there's some things I forget. Oh, yeah, we got that. But some of his artwork and stuff, we have a five-volume set that was a book that was through the Gordon Parks Foundation in New York. And visitors can come, can look and view for that book. And if we had that, if we had just all those collections in that book, we'd have to use this entire probably campus just to have everything on display. Wow. Gordon always worked. Even to his later years, he got into abstract art. Mm -hmm. And he would uh, have people go out and find him maybe some banana peels, potato chips, flowers, leaves. And he would superimpose them on watercolors and put them on two glass pane shelves and and probably zoom in and take some images of it, too. And we have some of those on display. And so he was always working. Some family members said they got up in the middle of the night and they just hear the typewriter going or something moving on and Gordon's just, he's working. And 
I think that as soon as he was born, he probably his mind was probably filled of knowledge that he wanted just to get out and create anything he wanted to do. He was just a wonderful, one of a kind person. Tell us about the Gordon Park celebration because there are photography competitions, writing yes. competitions. It's our annual uh, celebration we have. This is our 20th year. We're very excited about it. We have the photography contest and poetry contest going on. The theme for both of those is family, home, and roots. It's mm-hmm. inspired by Gordon's love for his family and his upbringing. And the photography contest is for non-professional photographers, and the poetry is for emerging poets. They can go on to our website, gordonparkcenter.org, or to our Facebook page to learn more information about or give us a call at 620-223-2700, our extension is 5850. We'll have those images on display during the celebration. It's a three-day event. We'll have people from all over, filmmakers, photographers, attendees, visitors, musicians. We'll have presentations by a photographer and dean from Lawrence on the legacy of Gordon Parks. We'll have a presentation by Professor Boyd for University of Virginia on the Superfly trilogy that Gordon's son Gordon Parks Jr. directed the classic film Superfly. Really, he'll okay. talk about that trilogy and the legacy of that. We'll have tours provided, what we call Gordon Parks Fort Scott tours, to include some of the Learning Tree film scene locations that was filmed here through Warner Brothers in 1968. And also we'll have some film showings, too, of Gordon's films going on. And we'll also have a presentation of Langston Hughes and Gordon Parks' collaboration Mm. and the exhibit display that we just created that we're going to put on loan to different libraries, museums, and colleges and uh, universities across the state of Kansas. A lot of people don't know that Gordon and Langston Hughes were friends, and they collaborated, uh, especially in Gordon's younger career. Before he got started, and that's where he took some of those photos, did a series of photos with Langston, okay. and also collaborated on a program, uh, Shakespeare in Harlem. Um, Gordon mm. supplied some ph- photographs to go with a lecture with Langston Hughes wow. in Southside Community Center in Chicago. And we'll have a presentation from Professor Michael Cheers. St. Louis State University, which I believe is originally from St. Louis area, okay. along with photographer Jason McCullough Johnson and uh, Professor Shripad Jagakar from Kansas State University. A project we're working on, we're re-imaging photos that Gordon took in Fort Scott in 1950 mm. when he was on assignment for Life Magazine to come do a story on segregated schools, and particularly the segregated school that he went to school here in Fort Scott, the Plaza School, and also do a uh, follow-up on his classmates. And so we're not only just re-imaging, but we're showing some of the impact that Gordon's essence comes out in his photography that's inspired by it. And so all the photographs will be in black and white. We'll have those on display. And we're calling that Back to Fort Scott now. Yeah. And also Professor Cheers is taking a group of photographers to Paris to re-image some of the photos that Gordon took in fashion. Wow. And we'll have those on display. We'll have a presentation by African-American female fine arts photographer Yvonne Rogers. She will bring her collections to Fort Scott. She is from Fort Scott, wow. and she's self-taught, too, following the footsteps of Gordon Parks. Super. And so she'll be here to provide her collections and do a presentation on that, too, as well. We'll also have a mural unveiling of the first Kansas Color Infantry unit that was established here in Fort Scott. Mm. That unit was the first all-black unit to actually serve in the Civil War and fight in a battle. Seriously. Predates the 54th Massachusetts. That a lot of people get... Right, right. Confused on, with the, especially with the film Glory. Right. But you know, the actual unit was here from, that was started here in Fort Scott, Kansas. Wow. So we'll have that mural on display, unveiling with that. We'll have a dance, perform, music performance 
by the case Kansas City All-Stars, Casey All-Star Band. We'll have presentations by Kansas State University Professor Catherine Carlin on Gordon's classmates' descendants and do a follow-up on what happened to them. Kurt Sharp, he is the executive director at the Gordon Parks Museum here in Fort Scott, Kansas. Kurt, it's great to talk to you about this. I really appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you. And I I, uh, really encourage everyone to make a visit to Fort Scott, Kansas, to come here and see this because you will be in awe. And you need to learn more about Gordon Parks and his life and what he did and the legacy that he leaves behind. Yes, please do. And please just give us a call, 620-223-2700. Our extension is 5850. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And with that, we've come to the end of another enlightening episode of St. Louis in Tune. I hope you've enjoyed our deep dive into the life of Gordon Parks as much as I have. Remember that knowledge is a powerful tool, but its true potential lies in what you do with it. If you've enjoyed today's episode and found it valuable, please subscribe to St. Louis in Tune on your favorite podcast platform. Leave us a rating and review and share it with your friends and colleagues. Your support means the world to us. And of course, if you have any thoughts, questions, or topics you'd like to explore in future episodes, don't hesitate to reach out to us on our website, stlintune.com, or through social media. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks to Kirk Sharp for being our guest. Our theme music is by Bob Berthesell. And we thank you for being a part of our community of curious minds. And remember to keep seeking, keep learning, walk worthy, and let your light shine. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker. 